Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't stuck. It is the vehicle on which the world rides for convenience and pleasure wherever roads run. It is far better to be personally independent in the matter of travel by ownership of a bicycle than to rely on the far more expensive and complicated means which at the end have only bought speed. In the process, they may have lost you the health, the activity, the silence and the delight that is wedded to personal travel in the cycling sense of that term. Completely lovely, wonderful Monday morning here in Melbourne, the 21st of March. You're listening to the Yarrabug Radio Show here on 3CR, on the Tranny in the Kitchen, podcasting it later in the week, or listening to it on your bike. Along for the ride on the tandem this morning, Jeremy Hordy is joining me. Good morning, Jeremy. Morning, Val. Morning, everyone. We're going to go through the usual list of news and events, but we're going to specifically try and... Um, Occupy a little bit of um, time and words to old English bikes, bikes of a certain age. Yeah. A little bit of history, a little bit of comment on how history doesn't change much. Many thanks to Amy Goodman for Democracy Now!, one of the most wonderful programs ever to come out of the US. We all know that. And I think that's it. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy, I always freeze up by myself. I should send her. Um, just Jeremy and I and, um, should send a our very best get well thoughts to Faith, who's home with a bit of a lurgy today. Not feeling too good, Faith. I hope this great weather gets you up and about. Ah, the world of bicycles. Now, Jeremy. Where do we start, Val? 
I'm going to start such with a big, my, dis- I'm such a big start- subject. I know. It's such a big subject. Let's start off with a little bike moment each. I'll go first because I know yours is wonderful, so I'll get the, <laughs> the crime out of the way. Um, many years ago now, it's, uh, it doesn't seem so long ago, I suppose, spoke cards were a great fashion. Yeah. Fixie spoke cards. You couldn't have a bicycle event unless you had produced a spoke card for it as well. Just familiarise me with the spoke card. Is it that thing that rattles a lot as you go No, on? no, that's the spoky-dokey. Right. That's, <laughs> okay, something, spoky-dokey. that's something for small children's bikes. Uh, okay. No, I shouldn't say that. It actually has quite an appeal to some adults that every time the uh, wheel goes around, they drop and rise on the spokes. Yeah. These are sort of like a little laminated photo or... Um, um, an ad, I suppose, or something about the event that then gets jammed into the spokes okay. in the wheel. Right. So it was a bit of a fashion at some stage. People used to ride around with, uh, I think, numbers off restaurant tables was the first start of it. Okay. And anyway, so I'm making a long story, a short story too long. <laughs> anyway, along that fashion, in my front wheel, of course, is a couple of um, old spoke carts. Andy from Roubaix in... Uh, June always issues a spoke card. Anyway, I've got a couple of soft animals also strung up in the front wheel. Australian marsupials. Uh, there is... Uh, no, there's not a koala, actually. Right. There's a um, skeleton bear, but unfortunately in there is Elmo as well. And I was at work the other week and a young three-year-old spotted Elmo in my front wheel and for the next 20 minutes tried vigorously to release Elmo from the <laughs> spokes in my wheel. It was quite funny. <laughs> anyway, Elmo stayed. That bike moment, Jeremy? Well, I think it's got to be participating in the Moomba parade uh, but, uh, a week last Saturday, wasn't it? Uh, on Monday, in fact, yep. actually. Um, so I was invited by Paul and Charlie Ferrin very very kindly to participate and I ended up in an 1819 hobby horse uh, or a dandy horse as I think they used to call them um, gliding in from Richmond uh, to join the parade with the rest of the cycling eccentrics Um, yeah it was a wonderful wonderful day Um, we had a fantastic lunch in the botanical gardens and I was a bit sore by the end of it I've got to confess but (laughs) well worth it and what was the ride quality of the hobby horse? Well, um, you're gliding along, there's no pedals, as you know. Um, so you have to have quite a well-upholstered seat, as well as a, you know, a well, well-upholstered posterior, I think. I didn't have the latter, but I had the former. So I did okay, but I was a bit numb by the end. And, and I also got a chance to um, try out a few of the other bicycles there, and chief of which was um, Matt Ben's Penny Farthing, which was, I only went a couple of hundred yards for fear of falling into the Yarra. But it was a great, it was a great experience. And, uh, I, and I want one now, so I've got the bug. You should, um, somebody should introduce you to the festival down in Evendale in Tasmania. I'm sure probably somebody's already made you aware. Is so, this the Tasmanian um, penny farthing racing? That's it. You've yeah. got it in one. Yeah. It's a must-go too. Um, the, um, have you had a chance to look at the Farron collection? Or you probably saw a fair, fair few of them on Moon, but Yeah, I had a good uh, chance to have a look round. Fantastic collection of bicycles. Really, really fascinating. Um, yeah, and uh, could do with a few visits, I think. It's impossible to cover all the cycles there just in two hours. and You need, you need a couple of days, I think. But, yeah, it was great. Just um, while we're on this point, Jeremy, you're, you've been to Melbourne a couple of times before. Mm. Does every um, whereabouts in England? 
or should not say? Well, I'm, I'm from Manchester, but meant, yeah. uh, the last few years I've been living in a city called Exeter in the in the southwest. Yeah. Are there just as many bicycle and you said it yourself eccentrics in? those places in England, and you've obviously met a few here in Melbourne quite recently. No, no, I don't think um, proportionally there are the same number um, as, as I've seen here in Melbourne. But then, then again, I was at a kind of festival for cycling eccentrics, the, yeah. the participation of the Vintage Cycle Club in the, in the Moomba Parade was a sort of collection of all the local cycling nutters, wasn't it? So um, they were all in one place. Uh, and and I, don't, I can't think of a similar event apart from things like the Tweed Run. Uh, in London, in provincial cities like Exeter, for example, I don't think we've got a similar event. There's a sort of uh, there is a very small vintage run once a year, uh, so I suppose we, we've got something similar, but it, it doesn't it, it didn't quite have the impact that uh, the Boomba Parade seemed to have. No, I mean you know it does have a wonderful ability, cycling and cycling bikes and everything to gather together people of strong opinions and <laughs> yeah and. Um, Celebrating some ideas and not celebrating others. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, they're all really, really interesting people as well as that. So that you do, you got the interesting people as well as the interesting bikes, and it was a great combination. There we go, and you had to travel a long way to get to it. <laughs> Let's get. Um, I'm going to run through a little bit of news. Um, where shall we start? Of course, the classics and the um, racing in Europe is starting to build up. Uh, Milano San Remo over the last couple of days. Uh, Anun Delmar, Delmar uh, won in a close uh, sprint. There is some conjecture, I think, at the moment that he might have got a toe up one of the hills and there's been a little bit of... A chemical toe or a physical toe. <laughs> a physical toe. <laughs> he was in a crash, apparently hanging on the car door a little bit too Oh, long. right, one of those. So we await the results of that. Um, in other disappointing news, on the two sides of this, uh, in... Um, New South Wales, an effort by the Greens, the Cycling Party and a couple of other, a collective of small parties, uh, tried to get a disallowance motion through the New South Wales Parliament. Um, it didn't get through um, to try and wind back those rules. I was going to make a joke that um, the number of positive interactions between car drivers and bicycle riders has increased in New South Wales, but I don't think it's a very funny thing. <laughs> They've been a, um, and this is not, I don't think, an unintended consequence. I'm not sure, Jeremy, if you're up to speed with this, has been push on in New South Wales to equalise the fines for um, bike riders and to equate it to car drivers. So, Is this the fine, sorry for interrupting, is this no. the fine for car dooring? So if you open your car door onto a passing bike, what's the fine for that? Uh, that's another new ball game right. that we've tried <laughs> in Victoria to change a couple of times. It is still ongoing. It's gone from seventy dollars to two hundred and sixty mm. or something. Um, but New South Wales has picked up, has increased all these fines. What um, I've read a couple of accounts of. It seems to then generate a little bit of an idea in motorists that cyclists are now to blame because we've had to raise the fines to make them behave themselves. Yeah. And there's been a as you would expect, a bit of a, more of a backlash against cyclists in New South Wales than probably anybody intended. Anyway, let's yeah. hope that settles down. From my own limited experience, the cyclists in Melbourne seem really well behaved compared to um, English counterparts. The English cyclists tend to be a bit colour blind. Uh, so red always looks like green <laughs> at the traffic lights. But here, everyone seems to obey them. Well, 
We were settled as a penal colony. We're, we're, a, very, <laughs> your we're a very obedient, <laughs> a very obedient society. Although we might glad think, to hear it. Yeah. Although we think we might buck authority every now, and we are quite obedient. Interesting. Um, the other thing that um, everybody, uh, well, I'm sure everybody's had a look at it, and I think a lot of the over 7,000 submissions that went to the Melbourne City Council's bike strategy, which which was released a couple of weeks ago. Now you can find that online. Well worth having a look at. The estimation is now that there are something like 12,000 cyclists riding into the Mm. city, CBD, um, every day, and expected by 2020 that number to be up to 20,000. So we're going to find more and more bike lanes everywhere, which will just be wonderful. Yeah, um, which will be good. I should touch on this, Jeremy. You've, cyclists in Melbourne are much more obedient. How do you find uh, things have changed over the last five years? More bike lanes. There is there yeah. are more cyclists. Do you have you noticed that? Um, well, I first came here, I think, in two thousand and twelve for a, a, a short visit. Last the last time I was here was a year ago. Um, I can't in in truth, identify any differences in, in those brief experiences. Um, but um, it does seem like a, a city that's really caters well for cyclists, you know, all these wonderful bike lanes that you've got on, on all the major thoroughfares. And these little signs as well on the more minor roads, encouraging cyclists to adopt a central position in the carriageway. Oh, that's great. But I don't think the motorists fully understand them. But, but it's great to protect cyclists. We'll be waiting for them. (laughs) Now, we're going to talk about some old bikes. But first, we need a little bit of a message, and we'll be back right after this. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today, we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant, and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. And you're back listening to the Arabug Radio Show. And um, my guest today is Jeremy, and we're going to try and talk about um, one of the great institutions of bicycle manufacturing. I shouldn't say that. I'll have... French and Italians down on my th- down on my, <laughs> down on my uh, back pretty quickly, but why don't we just run through a few numbers? Rover, uh, Rover, Dirdley Pearsons, Rallies, New Rapids, Rudge, James, Hendrick, Sunbeam, Humber, Centaur, BSA, Evans. The list goes on of bicycles made in England, doesn't it? Yeah, well, that's, that's just a fraction of them. I think there were hundreds yep. um, in the 20th century up to the, you know, the 80s when a lot of them seemed to disappear. Dursley Peterson, you mentioned, was a classic Danish design, wasn't it, I think? But he was living in England. He was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he came to England to in, embrace that freedom of design. Yeah, and, yes. and he was a free design as well. Yeah. A wonderful bike quite difficult to mount because <laughs> you've got this strange saddle that can end up perpendicular and cause you an injustice if you're not careful but uh, great bike 
pretty hard to get off, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah, you've got to use the similar method to the penny farthing. So they've got this um, little step coming out of the rear axle. You've got yeah. to try and find that somehow and then dismount. All those bikes. A long history of it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think people were just using them for everyday transport for decades, weren't they? Yep. And they were cheap. Um, of course, if you went to the more artisan, higher-end builders, then you had to pay a, a bit more. Um, but a lot of people were, in, were you know, members of cycling clubs, racing at the weekends and things like that. Um, and I suppose all that changed with when motorcycles and cars got a bit cheaper, perhaps in the early 60s, something like that. Uh, and then the culture started to change a bit. It's interesting. I'm going to read out a timeline because it's quite historically, you can pick up, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, look, I've got a couple of rallies in my collection. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, rallies were rallies. We all know that. Well, but, they did some higher-end racing ones, didn't they, with 753 tubing, I think. Well, it's interesting. Not many people realise the close connection between Reynolds and Rally. They were both owned by the same company. They yeah. were virtually the same company. Right. I think it wasn't called the Tubes Alloy Project. That was the uh, British atomic bomb thing. But... Um, T.I. Rally was an amalgamation of the two of them. Yeah. But I thought 1886, they started making um, rally bikes. 1887, Reynolds tubing was starting to be made. Mm. Um, 1896, Rally bought or Carlton started, one of mm. the other great bicycle things. In 1896, Rally produced 30,000 bikes out of that one factory in Nottingham. Mm. Quite fascinating. 1902, uh, they buy Sturmey Archer. Mm. Then in quick succession, they buy Humber, Rudge Whitworth, Triumph. Uh, 1935, Reynolds 531 tubing has started. That's right, yeah. Uh, uh, then Rally buys BSA, mm. then merges together with um, uh, Carlton to make Thai Rally, which is virtually you know, the production of uh, very good bikes. Yeah. 1960 buys Carlton again and starts making high-quality rally bikes in yeah. um, well, Carlton's old factory that they bought, mm. which is really quite fascinating. That's my first racer, actually, Carlton. When, when I was a boy, my dad bought it me when I was 11. Um, Carlton Corsa. Yeah, it was fantastic. Five-speeder. It was brilliant. I wish I still had it. I don't know where it's gone. What colour? Uh, green, uh, this oh. really sort of seventies, mid seventies green. Yeah. Mud guards, no mud guards. Uh, I think there were shorties. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a fascinating history. I mean, this you, this has got capitalism writ large over it. One big fish starts to swallow everything yeah. else in its path. But anyway, besides that, and then I think the the it actually Nottingham went sort of downhill a bit. Um, mm. You yeah, uh, rally US was quite big, and then Huffy bought that off them. And then I think um, things started to disappear. Yeah, it was all very sad. But a, but a big didn't necessarily mean bad. I mean, you had um, outfits like Holdsworth, who were, uh, had quite big factories churning out bicycles, but they used to invite um, really well-known, very skilled craftsmen frame builders to work for them. Um, so they had very good frames, had a very high reputation for quality. Um, all that changed. I, I don't know when Holdsworth folded, um, but possibly in the 80s, something like that. So that's a general overview. Now, I've seen you on a wonderful bike. Oh, the Paris, the Paris Galibier, yeah. So, history? Paris Cycles started in um, 43, I think. He was making, the guy who owned Paris Cycles, uh, Harry Wrench, 
was making cycles under his own name prior to that. But he was worried that his name, Wrench, would be associated with a German heritage. And, and of course, that was very sensitive at the time, so he, he formed this outfit called Paris Cycles. And they had a few in the range, the top model of which was a Paris Galibier with this very strange frame. And, and he made that for about 10 years, I think, up to 52, 53, something like that. You're going to have to describe the strangeness of the frame now. Uh, well, it's got a kind of um, two-part seat tube and the down tube doesn't go down to the bottom bracket as in the normal diamond frame. It goes about halfway up and meets um, and sort of forms another seat tube. Uh, it's quite difficult to describe, actually. And, and the top tube is split in two, so it's got two very thin top tubes. And when, were, when, when was he building bikes? He, th- those, that model was built between 43 and, and 52, 53. Um, pretty much the same design, apart from a, a bit of tinkering here and there uh, throughout its production. I think there were about 8,000 made, something like that. I don't know how many have survived. Um, and he gave various different accounts of, of the reason why he had this rather strange frame design, you know, to, depending on who he talked to. Sometimes he would say, well, it's to give it extra stiffness, make it better for racing and hill climbing. And then other times he'd try and encourage people who wanted a more comfortable ride to ride them. So he'd say, yeah, it makes it more flexible. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not sure what the true, what the true reason was. But. How did you come across your example? I was searching around for one for a long time and, and walked into this uh, garage of a contact of, of mine and, and there were about 70 ancient bikes, R.O. Harrison's, Hetchins, all kinds of things in there. And, and what stood out was, for me anyway, was this Paris Galibier. It was a bit knackered. Anyway, we, we agreed a price and, and I rode it for, for years just like that and, and about two years ago decided that I was going to restore it and, and tried to you know, source some more period-correct parts and things like that and get it all together. That took about a year. What was um, what was componentry? Was the original componentry when you first got it? It had some Compag hubs on, for example. Um, I think Weinman brakes, which weren't quite period-correct. This My bike, actually, is the frame's 43, I think, and, and the forks um, were 52. Um, but anyway, it's all got period correct stuff on now. It was a bit of an obsession, really. No, you're not a bicycle eccentric. <laughs> no, 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 not. of course not. <laughs> Speaking of which, actually, I've seen in, the, in, in just the last couple of days, every now and then, obviously, bikes have sat in a garage or under a house and been never ridden and never touched. Yeah. There was a bike came into the shop the other day with a complete full set of uh, Huret Sarks white cranks, white pedals, Fantastic. white derailers. Yeah. And, I mean, the little hairy bits were still on the tyres and probably hadn't done two kilometres in its whole life. Oh, wow. So it was absolutely... It was quite glary, actually, but anyway... So the owner was trying to get it going again, yeah, wasn't Yeah, it? for one yeah, of the daughters going to ride it again. It was Excellent. lovely. Good. With a lovely little set of uh, portier, you know, those lovely French portier swept back bars on it Oh, as yeah, well. yeah. Fantastic. Let's get back to doing your bike up, though. When you start one of those processes, it's a long journey yeah and it's also a bit of a heartache involved because you haven't got your bike to ride so you know it's you've got to disassemble it and send the frame off to have it resprayed and you know you're always worried about what what it's going to be like when it comes back and and, and it, but you can't ride it so, so it means you've got to buy some more which is what happened i ended up getting a few more unusual frame vintage bikes and and hence the collection grows 
and period correct components. The bike is, I'm going to say it's a good ride because nothing will, you know. Well, it's a comfortable ride, but I think that's, that may be attributable to the um, 32 tyres on it. Yeah. Um, they soak up quite a few bumps. Yeah. Um, and it's got, it's got a five-speed block on, on it, but it, it won't throw onto the smallest cog. But I find that four gears is, four gears is sufficient for Melbourne anyway. You don't really need more than that. Well, not on my bike anyway. <laughs> it's always, I'm sure you sound like you've never had this conundrum, you know, do I do it all up period correct and then pin it to the wall or do I ride it and ride it? You've got to ride it, it I think. You've, go. you've got to ride it. It's going to get marked, but that's what it's there for, isn't it? It is too. Yeah. It is too. Somebody was, uh, we were talking the other day about, you know, somebody or somebody asked me, what's the best thing about, you know, a bike? Oh, not a bike. I said, what makes a, what makes a bike look good? Yeah. I said, to him, well, having a human on it and riding it. Yeah. <laughs> makes a world of difference yeah. to a bike. <laughs> bike just leaning, leaning against the wall. It's not doing anything. looks like a skeleton virtually, but add a human with rhythm. It's a whole new ball game. Yep. Any other uh, collectors then keep collecting the same vintage? you still doing collect, trying to collect bikes from that era or another example of that yeah, one? Yeah, I'm always looking around. I've got um, a few others. Um, I suppose in terms of unusual designs, um, one that springs to mind is the Flying Gate, the, the Baines um, TT International I've got, which is still in the UK. I'm trying to bring it over. I don't know whether you're familiar with those, but they basically haven't got a conventional seat post at all ah yes yeah they've just got this vertical seat uh, this vertical tube which goes up at at a uh, completely vertically to meet the top tube and and then the seat post is the truncated one just to hold the saddle is is set back a bit on uh, secured by a couple of seat stays there um if you hitchens moulton Dursley Peterson, there is a sort of um, part of that whole history of actually trying to design a bike that's not just a double diamond, wasn't there? Yeah. In that period. There's a lot of experimentation with frames and frame designs. Um, someone told me at Moomba, actually, I think it, it was Paul Ferrand, that he thought he had something to do with um, the racing regulations at the time, which forbid the names of the cycle makers to be on the bikes. So cycle manufacturers came up with ingenious ways to make sure their bikes got recognised. That might be something to do with it. I, I don't know. The curly stays. Yeah, the, the, they called that the vibrant design or something like that. They had a name for it, Hetchins. I can't quite remember yeah, what it was. I'm but sure it came from the marketing department, yeah. the engineering department. Beautiful bikes. They are got a stunning appeal to them, hasn't it? Yeah. Jeremy, been great to have you on. Thank you, Val. I hope you enjoy the, the rest of your stay. And you'll be here for... Um, Forever, I think. Forever? Yeah, we'll see how it goes, but there we go. <laughs> long term. Long term. That's what we like. Now, Easter weekend coming up next week. A couple of events on. Um, certainly one, if you're interested in making a submission to Bicycle Network's Passing Distance Laws, there's a seminar meeting on Wednesday the 23rd March at the uh, Bicycle Network headquarters that's in Burke Street. But the more important thing is uh, 24th of March, I think that's Thursday night, a 7.15 start for the full moon ride down the upper Ferntree Gully, at the upper Ferntree Gully station and riding back to Melbourne. That's down the Blind Creek Path, Scotchman's Creek Path and Gardner's Creek Path. Um, you're listening to 3CR, all our presenters are volunteers and our guests are all volunteers and we continue... We need your support to keep on air. 
Don't forget it's the 40th anniversary. Next up is Dirt Radio. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.